chapter 29 this week. Um, I feel like between Walton and myself, this disclaimer has been given multiple times, but I, I feel the need to give it again, that with some of these chapters, it's just really hard to pull meaning out of the text. <laughs> it's, it's really difficult to see how this stuff applies to us today. Um, so we'll give this our best shot with chapter 29, um, but there may be whole sections of the chapter where we're like, Here's what it says. Let's just take it and move on. Um, well, the title of my section here is Woe to David's City. So that, that seems to fly right directly to me. It's a David City. <laughs> Jackson's in trouble. <laughs> Hopefully you are not the David that this is referring to. You may not be the only David. Um, one thing that I think may be helpful is if we jump ahead and read a few verses out of chapter 30, because that I think will help sort of set the stage for what we're talking about. I mean, as you all know, the chapters and verses are, were not, are not inspired, right? So, so the flow of thought is sometimes lost by breaking it up to these chapters. So I think reading a little bit of chapter 30 first will, uh, chapter 30 first will help us to um, sort of figure out where we are here with chapter 29. So, with that said, by the way, bonus points. Does anybody know when the chapters and verses first came to the scriptures? I, I, I remember reading it about it something. It was a ways down the road. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was in the 1200s. Yeah, so it was a English scholar or something. It was a in in an archbishop named Stephen Langton. Um, he was a very controversial figure in his day. And um, the, the, the powers that be over him argued back and forth about whether he should be in the position that he is. And that argument ended up down the road resulting in the Magna Carta <laughs> being written. So like it's kind of a domino effect of all of this stuff. So this guy was actually pretty, a pretty important historical yeah, figure. Yeah. But it didn't show up. The verses and chapters... I don't even think he. I don't even know if he did verses. I think he may have just done the chapter divisions. Didn't show up until the 1200s. So, yeah. All right. So, let's look at real quick uh, the first seven verses of chapter 30, and then we'll look at the end of that chapter before we go backwards to 29. Ah, uh, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, who take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at Zoan and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. An oracle on the beasts of Negeb, through a land of trouble and anguish, from where comes the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent. They carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them, 
Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab who sits still. So there's this warning to the people of uh, Jerusalem, the people of the southern kingdom. Do not seek help from Egypt. Do not go down to Egypt for help. Um, Can you recall times in the Old Testament where they have sought help from Egypt and it did not go well for them? Every time. Every (laughs) single time. So, you know, in in my struggle to figure out what to make of these chapters and in my, you know, my wrestling with these scriptures. Um, one thing that I keep coming back to over and over is looking at the big picture themes because, you know, I may not know the nitty gritty of what's going on with uh, Judah and Jerusalem and Egypt and Assyria at the time. And some of the historical stuff may be lost on me, but I can see that this is a this is a pattern to help us understand the rest of Scripture, right? So Isaiah, in helping his own people in his time make meaning of what is going on, he's saying, remember the old stories. Remember the stories from Genesis and Exodus and the Torah. Remember Israel's early history. Throughout Isaiah, he keeps referencing these old stories. Um, He's saying, look, you, the people of God, are playing out the pattern of the exile from Eden. You're playing out the pattern of the destruction of the old world and only the seed remaining, right? That's the days of Noah. You're playing out the pattern of Passover and, um, and the, the, um, the destruction of, in this case, of Egypt, where only those who are hidden, the hidden seed is kept safe, right? And all the other male children will be destroyed, right? All of the other seeds will, will, will be no more. So Isaiah is using these old stories to help make sense of what's going on in his time, right? And we will see as the story of Scripture unfolds that these patterns will, will find their fulfillment in Christ himself and in the church and what the church is about. So we are now the exiled people, right? We are... Um, we are hidden sojourners in a strange foreign land, right? We are Israel in Egypt. And so that, that I think, um, for me at least, is, is, is the way that I know how to make sense of these very strange chapters. Now, I've talked about this before with what I'm calling the Great Inversion, where... Um, God takes something negative and then flips it on its head, right? So he's saying, um, do not go down to Egypt. He's saying, do not um, do not place your hope in whatever power Egypt seems like it can provide. Um, this, is, this is very similar to when you read in Proverbs where God says, do not go to the foreign woman. This is very similar to that. He even he even calls Egypt a prostitute here in this chapter. So you see you see the connection between in Proverbs where he says, "Do not go down to the prostitute; her way leads to death." Do not go down to Egypt. Um, I call her Rahab, the prostitute. All right. Now we will come to the great inversion, where Christ 
will break his own rule and he will go to the foreign woman out of love for her and save her and it does lead to his death it does he does go down to the grave but in so doing he saves her and he makes her his bride and he transforms her into something else than what she was before that's the great inversion so this is the kind of stuff that I've been trying to figure out each each time that I sit here I try to figure out how to communicate this this sort of um, big picture flip that God sets up here in the Old Testament and then he flips everything on his head in the New Testament right but it has to do with um, it has to do with things that were forbidden in the first half of the story Right, but then finding their fulfillment and transformation in the new. Does that make sense what I'm saying at all? Right, yeah. Does this relate to the book of Hosea talking about? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Substituted the voice of a stranger for the voice of God. Yes. So, and that is very much our culture. Yeah. So, so there's the warning: is do not do not be enticed or intoxicated by, um, by the novelty of this new stuff that yeah. you're hearing, because there's a there's a kind of seduction in novelty and in strangeness. Whatever's um, happening now. Yeah. But what God ends up doing is itself a strange and foreign thing. And we read this back in chapter 28, where in chapter 28, verse 21, the Lord Yahweh will rise up and it says, strange and alien is his work. Right? That's the mystery of the gospel right there. And you can spend your whole rest of your life just thinking about that. Well, I think the hidden within all this is the idea that only Christ is able. Yes. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, the, a lot of his uh, uh, antagonism that, that he came across uh, was because he was apparently violating the law. But he was able to be Lord of the Sabbath. He was able to eat with uh, sinners and tax collectors because his righteousness uh, over, overcame their unrighteousness. He was able to touch lepers and his ceremonially, ceremonial cleanliness overwhelmed you know, the, the, the ceremonially unclean act of touching a leper. So... 
know, in a way, all these laws and, and directions here, like what Isaiah is, is communicating, were for the protection of Israel because they were unable to do do this stuff and survive. Whereas, Be, yeah. survive spiritually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas Christ is able. So a lot of the things that are forbidden in the Old Testament, I think I'm saying the exact same thing that you're saying. A lot of the the things that are forbidden in the Old Testament, and it seems like God has an, has a an extraordinarily intense reaction to them, is because Israel is in this act of disobedience, uh, taking on something that should have been reserved for Christ Himself, mm-hmm. right? So you see that in the story of Cain. They're overstepping. Yes, yeah, exactly. They're right. overstepping themselves, but they're also endangering themselves. That's the yes. point of where the Pharisees wind up. Jesus, they've overstepped the simple, the simpleness of the law, and turned it into a you know you got to you got to be doing something exactly right every second. And so Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you know. So, you know, but that's a slam on down there because their righteousness was crap. <laughs> so, yeah, we ain't doing any better. What, what's that? What's that reference you're talking about? Destroying God doing that. The, the which which thing? The strange thing. That was back in chapter 28. 28. Yeah, chapter, uh, verse 21. It says that um, God's deed will be a strange deed. Yeah, yeah. yeah my, my translation just says unusual. Unusual. That's <laughs> a little bit weak. Well, it is weak because, because it's the same word that's used of the prostitute in Proverbs. Right? And you're supposed to see that connection. There's this, there's this holy scandal going on with what God is doing in the world by scattering his seed out to the nations. There's this sort of, um, I mean, it's, it is no longer the, the purity of just Israel, right? Because it, the, now the seed is scattered to this foreign soil. But the mystery is that it's in the foreign soil that the seed finds fertile ground, right? And... Um, and later on down the line, it will be Christ himself who goes down to Egypt as an infant, right? He will go down to Egypt in exile, right? And he will play out this story, but he will come back, and you all know what happens from there. Let's look at the end of this chapter real quick, the end of uh, chapter 30. This, I think, will be particularly helpful for us um, for the start of chapter 29, Again, there's this long flow of thought that's, that's consistent, and it helps to put them together here. So I'm at the end of chapter 30. I'm going to start at verse, I guess, 33. For a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready, its pyre made deep and wide. With fire and wood in abundance, the breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. Again, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they're many, and in horsemen because they're very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. There's this, there's this thing about this burning place that has long been prepared. All right, and this is the... the, the uh, impending judgment of God. Um, sulfur is, is always in Scripture 
a symbol of this kind of judgment, right? This sort of volcanic um, uh, ash, you know, that comes with the destruction of, uh, well, of Egypt when Israel's being delivered, of Sodom and Gomorrah um, when Lot is being delivered. Um, you can go on and on and on. Now, with that said, let's go back to the beginning of chapter 29. And let's talk about Ariel. Sulfur also has a heavy stench. It, it overwhelms the senses. It's, yeah. But can, can I ask you something? Just yeah. Very, uh, Yes. Uh, you know, every stroke of the Lord is 32. Every stroke the Lord lays on them with this punishing rod will be to the music of tambourines and harps. So it's like God is beating the crap out of them and music is playing. There's this, there's this, um, there's this contrast back and forth that's almost like a kind of whiplash where He's talking about judgment on um, on what God is is uh, displeased with and finds abominable, and on the other hand, his people are singing and praising. Is this kind of back and forth? Um, it's like it's like going back. It's like constantly switching your head back and forth between hell and heaven. It's like it's like it's it's almost overwhelming as you're reading it. This back and forth, and there'll be verses that don't even seem to go together. Where you'll have a verse that is is very um, uh, fire and brimstone, and then the next verse is about like you know, uh, praise be to God, and, and all of creation is you know, it's it's like paradise. Um, so it's this is back and forth. That's what you're talking about a sort of inversion script. Yeah. Yeah. Like two things that are completely opposite are somehow together. Yeah, we'll see that more as we go along. All right, so we're back to the beginning of 29. Sorry we're jumping around a lot. I'm trying to show just the flow of thought and the consistency of the themes here. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Add year to year. Let the feasts run their round. Let me just read a few verses here and then we'll talk about it. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around and will besiege you with towers and I will raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low. From the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder an earthquake and great noise with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. There's the fire of the presence of God, right, that you see over and over again in Scripture. When God shows up, there's always fire, right? That's both hell and heaven at the same time. It's the fire of hell and the fire of Pentecost. It's always fire. And the multitude of all nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distressor shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. As when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he's eating, and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he's drinking, and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched. 
so shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Okay, so that was an eight-verse section. Let's talk about Ariel. The obvious first question here is who or what is Ariel? And uh, the obvious initial answer is that Ariel is Jerusalem. It's a nickname that God and Isaiah is using for Jerusalem. But that doesn't answer the question of what Ariel is or why God would use that nickname at this particular time because it's not a word that shows up often in the Old Testament. So why would God use this particular nickname to be talking about his people in this way? Is this a positive thing or a negative thing? Because it sounds kind of negative to me. Um, the name Ariel means Lion of God. Lion of God. It is the name of the altar in the tabernacle and especially in the temple. So he is calling Jerusalem um, an altar place or a place of burning, a place of sacrifice. Um, you will see this in Ezekiel chapter 43. When Ezekiel gets a vision of sort of a cosmic temple, it is, it's not just the temple as it existed at the time. It is sort of a, um, actually, it may be that at the time that he gets that vision, the temple is destroyed. I, I, my, my timeline is a little fuzzy there. But regardless, Ezekiel is getting a vision of sort of the cosmic uh, temple. The temple was always intended to represent the whole cosmos in the first place, right? You have the, the outer you have the outer gate and you have these different levels, almost like concentric circles of going further up and further in, as C.S. Lewis would say. The outermost point, or one of that most outermost points, is this altar. This altar is even further out than the the, the basin of water which was a symbol of the ocean, right? So you're talking about, in sort of this cosmic map, you're talking about this place of burning that's further out than the ocean or the furthest point on the map. This is, for all intents and purposes, this is the underworld, yeah? Um, does anyone have, you have Ezekiel 43 pulled up, Greg? Yeah. Uh, read verse 15. Uh, the altar hearth is four cubits high, with four horns extending upward from the hearth. So that word, altar hearth, is in Hebrew, Ariel. And uh, the translators understood that that's what this is referring to. But literally it's talking about the Ariel. And she, Jerusalem, shall be to me like, like an altar hearth. She will be like a place of sacrificial burning. Now, is that, when you're talking about that, that that's the altar where people would bring their offerings? Yes. Sheep, whatever. It's not the Holy of Holies. Correct. And that's very important. It's, it's, it is very important that it's not in the Holy of Holies. It is an outside, it's an outside place. That's actually really significant to understanding what this is. It's when Christ is talking about, throw him outside where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Right throw him out of, from the inner court into this place, the outer court, the altar. Um, I don't mean to put the ladies on the spot here, but did y'all cover the tabernacle recently 
in one of y'all's studies? Was there a study of the tabernacle? Yeah. Did 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 the altar place come up in the study at all? I'm sure it did. I would have to ask her specifically. It did. Did did y'all? I mean, what what did y'all? I don't mean to put you on the spot, but what did y'all cover with it? I wasn't there that day. Okay. 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 Well, I have a picture here. This is a book that goes through just as much detail as you could possibly want to know about the sort of design of the temple. So if you'd like to look at this, it's shaped kind of like a ziggurat. There's a horn on each corner. There's a horn. It also has it also has near it a giant supply of salt, which I think is significant. Because when you talk about this burning place, this place of, uh, you know, uh, God's judgment taking over this, uh, you know, in this case, this animal sacrifice, the fact that there's a giant thing of salt should bring to mind Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah? Salt is, is, yeah. I'm guessing it's salt that's not lost its savor yet. I think. I did find a book, though. It's a big, fairly large book. It's colored. Oh, yeah. I think when Christ is talking about you are the salt of the earth, I I think. I think he's talking about persecution there. I don't think yeah. I don't think we understand what Christ is talking about, and I think it has to do with this altar. So you see that it's so then the people have to walk up this ramp. It looks like a it looks like a um, like a Babylonian ziggurat. It, it doesn't. It looks almost. Um, it almost has kind of like a pagan look to it, with the horns yeah. and the ziggurat style and all of that. Sure. And there's fire inside it, so you have to walk up to it. It's just like yeah, going to see the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> so here's something. Um, Ariel. It just so happens was also the name of an angel. And this is not just in the Hebrew language. This is in Sumerian cosmology and in like Mesopotamian myths. And the form of the word is slightly different, but it's all forms and variants of the name Ariel. It was an angel that guarded the underworld and just sort of stood watch over it. Now, I don't know, I have no idea how much of that is behind the scenes of what is being talked about here in Isaiah. But I think it's significant that in every, I won't say every, in a lot of the places in Scripture where you see the fire and brimstone judgment of God, there's always angels involved. Right? So when God takes out Egypt and, and surgically removes Israel from it, um, he does so by means of this angel of death called the Destroyer. And the Egyptians knew what the Destroyer was. There's actually an Egyptian retelling of the story. Um, it, we didn't have it for a long time, but it has been rediscovered, um, the Egyptian side of the story of the 
the the uh, the Red Sea Deliverance. Um, and they, I mean, they don't know the name of God. They don't they don't talk about Yahweh at all. But they they recognized the destroyer when the destroyer showed up, because it's this it's this primordial entity that shows up every few thousand years and just lays waste to everything, right? And so, yes, it's God doing it, but in this place of judgment and uh, doom and fire and brimstone, for some reason, I'm not saying I know why this is the case. I'm just pointing out that this is this is a consistent thing in Scripture. That there's usually angels of judgment involved. It's not just that God is doing it. It's God's doing it through these, I don't even know what to call them, these these uh, primordial entities, right? And I think Ariel is, I think the name Ariel is in, is in, is in the ballpark of that somehow. You also see this in Sodom and Gomorrah, by the way. There's angels go down to Sodom and Gomorrah and get Lot out before, before it's, you know, burned to a crisp. Well, Jesus said this on the Yes. So, I mean, in a, in a yes. heartbeat, I could have how many, 10,000, who knows how many angels come down. Well, at the end of time, that's how it said it's going to be in Jude. Right? Know. Jude quoting quoting um, um, uh, the book of Enoch says, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of, of his holy ones. Right? Now, that's probably a mix of saints and angels, but there are definitely angels involved. So, um, Did you say there was a connection to Mesopotamia? With this particular destroyer angel, um, so the destroyer in particular uh, was known to the Egyptians. I don't know about uh, I don't know about the Sumerians. Okay, I'm curious. I'm curious I would about guess that. so. I mean, you know, Isaiah is looking forward to the captivity. He's you know when he gets to the destruction of Jerusalem, he's getting into the Babylonian captivity. And then Ezekiel was living it. So this use of the name Ariel uh, for Isaiah may be a thing like you'll understand it when you see it because <laughs> it's coming. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it, we've got the destroyer in Revelation, Apollyon. Yes. Also Obadon. Yeah. Those are not angel names. Right. We're talking about this Friday. Ariel is an angel name with that L on the According to Jewish tradition, and I don't know when this tradition emerged, it may be, I don't know how reliable this is, but but Ariel or Arielim is a category of angel, just like cherubim or seraphim. There's, you know, all these different names of kinds of angels. I don't know. I take it with a grain of salt, but it's actually a category of angel is, is Ariel. I haven't ever read, uh, you know, uh, angels, angels. I don't think any of us know what no. we're talking about when it comes to angels. No, uh, yeah. Especially, especially we Protestants. Well, in the modern, modern 21st century. The New Testament says they show up about, you know, you, you might, we may be entertaining angels. Unaware. You know, so, so you have to be careful when you're out there doing whatever, whatever you think you're supposed to be doing. You might be, you might be encountering an angel. And if you, if you don't encounter them correctly by hearing yeah, I don't. I don't think we have any idea what we're talking about with this stuff. And I'm not trying to make any particular um, uh, practical point here, other than just to show 
this is a this is a common pattern in scripture and it's it seems strange to us it seems strange to us but i don't think it was strange for the the uh the ancient mind i mean recall that there were angels all over the design of the temple and the tabernacle even at the mercy seat there were two cherubim you know standing over you know this this sort of empty how, space so how many of us have grown up with a picture of two little kids walking across the bridge the creek that's falling apart there's an angel right up beyond the garden angel you know, how many people have seen that that painting i grew up with that thing maybe it's maybe it's a catholic thing more than anything else but it's an incredible picture you know it's just it's a the, the protection of children so where you have this guardian angel I mean, I grew up, I mean, we, we grew up talking about our guardian angel constantly. As, as Catholics, I don't guess we don't promise to do it too much, but... Pretty mysterious. Good ending comes the line, God's line, it says, uh, and his sovereignty, which we don't particularly completely comprehend what he allows or his purposes. Like the strange things, but even the demons, uh, when Jesus appears, they even speak to the Lord, reverence, reverence him as the Lord. They're all And say, Why do you come and torment, torment us before our time? These things are mysterious. All of them are. So, or the angel that kept Abraham from putting the dagger in the sun stop. So, C.S. Lewis wrote some about this stuff. I mean, he wrote some about a lot of different kinds of stuff, but he said, he said there's two sort of errors that you can fall into when we're talking about these things. One error is to, is to get into a kind of unhealthy fascination with the angelic world. And the other error is to just gloss over it because it doesn't fit with our modern sensibilities and to just kind of move on and just stick with what we're comfortable with He's right that they're both errors. I think we tend to err. I think we tend to err on the just leave it alone and just kind of brush it under the rug side. Uh, but but there is an error on, on either side, and so we need to be careful to guard against this stuff. I think it's important when we're reading scripture to recognize that there are there are things and 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 um, oh how do I say this? It takes a certain kind of humility to approach the scriptures and realize that because we are some 2,000 years of space and time removed from what was being written, there are ways of seeing the world that we just don't have anymore, right? And that may or may not be to our detriment, but I think it takes humility to acknowledge that in the first place. And an uh, and, and understanding of the angelic realm is, I think, one of those categories where we just, we don't, we, we don't even know where to begin with that sort of thing. And I think in some cases it's best not to try because we're just going to mess it up. Yeah, well, that's a particular Western problem, I think. Yes. I think in the East they've still got kind of a, more of a hook on it. Certainly in the third world they're seeing a lot, a lot more like actual manifestations of angelic stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we are right now at this moment, we are willfully ignorant or denying demonic activity you know, in our culture. I think a lot of it is denial. Well, 
this stuff is going to get more practical for coming generations. I mean, my generation, Scott, our generation, Caitlin, we're going to have to wrestle with this stuff in a way that David and Craig and Jim just aren't. I mean, the repaganizing of the world is going to be, it's going to be wild. And, yeah. You know, one point that I'm just thinking about things that Jesus said in the scriptures to the disciples. And uh, there were times where uh, he would ask, uh, your, your disciples could not cast the demon out. Why? why? And then there's times where, where the Lord said, oh, you little faith. Mm -hmm. And then he would do the miracle. So if there's anyone here who wants to try to uh, sort of uh, readopt the, the ancient worldview and try to, try to get a glimpse of how they would have thought about the, this, these sort of categories of, of beings and entities, I do have a book to recommend, um, although I will say it's not for the faint of heart. Um, it's this book here called The Language of Creation. I brought it a, a few weeks back with the intention of pointing it out, and then I forgot to because we just got talking about other stuff and it never came up. But this is a this is a very difficult read, not because um, of not because uh, there's there's strange stuff in it, and it actually doesn't talk about angels that much. But what this book does is it it exposes you to uh, the ancient way of seeing the world. Um, you remember how I showed the maps of the world where, um, you know, it's like the compass was inverted and you have the right hand and left hand of God on the world map and all of that. But that came out of this book. So that kind of thing is what you'll encounter here. Um, it's a very dense read. Each chapter is only a few pages because each chapter he's just trying to get you to 
uh, agree or assent to just one thing. It's like a list of propositions, and if you can get this one, okay, then we'll move on to the next thing, and then the next thing. And um, I highly recommend it. You will go into it as as a modern American, and you'll come out of it as a church father. It's uh, it will change how you see the world. This book. Um, Yeah. Because, because I mean, a lot of people don't even believe that the Red Sea actually happened. You know, so, so I would guess that this is sort of further evidence of the reality of that of that actual event. You know, so, you know, so it's going to be interesting to know where that is. You know, to look at it. That's that's one. The other thing I brought up this again, uh, photo of that. I don't think that's the ancient world view of angels. No, I, I don't know, think. I it's, not. It's, it's, a, it's a probably 1800s view of angels. But, uh, it's a beautiful angel. You know, so, but yeah. just to, I, I mean, I'm just saying, who, who has not seen that? Have you ever seen that picture before? Have <laughs> I, I seen I it? I've, I've seen it before. I've seen I know what you're It's hanging, if you're growing up a little Catholic child, it's hanging over your bed. <laughs> do, you, do, you remember, do you remember Ariel being in the Tempest? Uh, yeah, oh yeah, 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 I know the name Ariel really yeah. well. But as an angelic name in particular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, it's interesting, uh, I just saw Footloose at the net, which, you know, is, a, is sort of a spiritual struggle over dance, and... Uh, and it's uh, the, the daughter of the pastor is Ariel. Oh, okay. So, and, it should, and, and now, looking at what you just said, looking back at the play, I'm going, wow, this is her, the significance of her, who she is in the play is very important. She's the one that gives him the Bible to look at. Yeah. And she's the one, in a sense, that starts the restoration between herself and her father. Because the father's a pays a pastor who is angry because his son was killed in a car accident. And so he, because they went to a dance, so they not want to dance, basically. I want to I say one more thing about Ariel, and then we'll close this loop and move on. But um, let jump ahead to chapter 33, verse 7. I'm going to retranslate for you a verse that was terribly translated no matter which version of the Bible you have, I guarantee you it's badly translated. Um, now, what I have in ESV 33.7 is, Behold, their heroes cry on the streets, the envoys of peace weep bitterly. Do you all have something similar to that? The brave similar? Men. The brave men, heroes. Yeah. All right, that's... It's, it's, uh, it's Aralim. It's, it's the plural of Ariel. Their Ariels cry... And it's not in the streets; it's outside. They're trying to—they're trying to make this easier for you to understand. Their aerials cry outside. Remember that the aerial was outside the holy—the holy place, right? Their angels, not not messengers, not envoys. Their angels of peace, angels of peace. weep bitterly. 
All right, so this is, a, this is a parallelism that shows up. You know how parallelism works in the Bible, where it'll say the same thing in two different ways. This is all over the Psalms and the Proverbs and everything. So it's just a common, like, literary device. Um, behold, their, their heirloom cry outside, wail outside, in sort of this, like, haunting, jackal-like way in the dark place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, Right? Their angels of peace weep bitterly. This is a description of the judgment place of God, the fire and brimstone place. It's this place of, of, you know, where the where the the the, the, the demon monsters haunt in the night, right? This is this this is this description of um, the outer place that Israel now is going to be thrown into, you know, and they thought that they, you know, they thought they were above that and that they were, you know relegating others to this outer place and now god says no this is this is you're you're going to be the altar now so all right well one thing you can say for sure about the name is because of that l at the end whatever is coming is from god yes it is not from any other source like israel l <laughs> you know they are from god too but uh, so yeah it's not just happenstance it's not all right. We we can, we can get a little bit further before we run out of time. Um, as we were reading the first eight verses, was there anything that jumped out to you? Other than I mean, we talked a lot about Ariel. I don't mean that. I mean anything beyond that. Um, the visitation of the Lord of Hosts with thunder and earthquake and all of that. Well, I'm also curious about their voices and the dust coming up, you know, I mean, these are the, I guess, people at the bottom of this, you can't get much more. I was thinking about the shaking, torment, all of these things, sort of describing it, but I'm reminded that our God is a consuming fire, and it's uh, what you hear. Yes, yes. So do you remember in Revelation where it talks about the smoke of Babylon going up forever? I, I don't think it's a coincidence that this altar is shaped like a ziggurat. I think, that's, I think it's that way on purpose. It's a picture of Babylon burning forever. Right? The Tower of Babel was a ziggurat. Right? And so you have this picture of Babylon, which is the world power burning forever and ever outside the holy place, shall we say. And um, what does that look like? Well, it looks like a ziggurat on fire. Um, so that is that is what we're seeing in this. All right. Um, let's keep moving along. Verses 9 and 10. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes. And then he inserts sort of an explanation of what he's talking about. He has closed your eyes, the prophets. The prophets are supposed to be your eyes. They're supposed to tell you the vision, literally, of what God is doing, but he has closed the prophet's eyes. 
and he has covered the heads of the seers. When I read this, it, it brings to mind Isaiah 6, where it talks about the senses of the people of God being dulled, right? And at the time, he was saying, um, you know, you, you, you remember in the old stories this was Pharaoh, but now this has become you. You know, your heart has become hard. Your senses have become dulled. And that's what's happening here. He's saying, um, your eyes are closed, and you're you're blind, you your senses your 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 spiritual senses can't comprehend what I God am doing in the world, um, to the point that you might as well be be drunk or asleep. Like that's how that's how messed up your your senses are. This is a kind of, this is a, um, it's a spiritual kind of drunkenness. It's a, um, well, it's an, it's an image of death. Do you all have anything on this? That's what I got the picture. Drunkenness and alcoholism. Yeah. Yeah. It's not what this is. It seems to be the picture of people being drunk themselves. It's a kind of it's a kind of fall. It's a, well, we we saw that with with Noah when he repeated the fall after the flood. I mean, there's like a second Garden of Eden story all over again. Um, where he, he takes in the fruit of the vine, uh, but you know he, he just makes himself drunk. That's all it is. And yeah, Craig, you look like you got something. Um, up empty. Okay, all right. And this vision of all of this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, "Read this," he says, "I cannot, for it is sealed." And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. Um, and then we come to a, a direct quote of Christ himself from uh, Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. And the Lord has said, because this people draw near with me, draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. This is the, the strange work of God that we were talking about before. So this is Christ himself quotes this, talking about the people of Israel. You know, They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So that's what Isaiah and God are interested in when they're talking about the state of Israel. It's not, it's not what they say. It's, 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 uh, it's what's under the surface. Now, Mark 7, 6 through 8.
Let me pull it up here. And Jesus said to the Pharisees and scribes, this was right after uh, Christ, he's sort of antagonizing them, right? He's saying, why... Um, uh, dis- the disciples are basically disregarding some of the traditions. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? But they eat with defiled hands. They didn't wash their hands before they ate. And Christ said, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Yeah, yeah. I think when we, I think when we come up on these these uh, judgmental statements against the Pharisees and the scribes, I think the right approach is to is to assume that that's us. We are the Pharisees and the scribes, and I think we tend to. I think we tend to um, think that because we talk about grace and forgiveness, that we are that we're above that state of hypocrisy. But you can you can be legalistic about not being legalistic. You're you're going to end up a Pharisee no matter which way you go. And, that's exactly yeah, and and I think I think that's an important thing that we have to keep in mind when we're reading these stories is that we are the Pharisees in this story. Um, the beauty of Paul is he never forgot where he came from. Yes. And he was a Pharisee. Yeah, he was constantly reckoning with that and wrestling with that and you see that in his epistles that he's talking about that at the beginning he's the least of the apostles and then he says he's the worst of all the Christians and then finally says he's the worst of the world I mean that's the transition of him of his acknowledgement oh well he says you know if we're going to go by pharisaic legalism he said I've got a lot of ground I could stand on he said (laughs) but I count that all as as he, it's a, it's, it's a. I'm not even, I'm not even going to say what word that should be translated as. It's a four-letter word. I count this as, as waste, as human waste. It's. Uh, I count it as dumb or whatever, but the real word is, we know what it is. My mom said it in German. That seems like as good a place as any to end on. <laughs> Thank you all for your time. We'll keep going with chapter 29 next week, and we'll probably dip back into chapter 30. Thank you.